I'm thankful for the opportunity, Pastor David, and, and he's been a great friend and mentor to me, and, and uh, love the opportunity to be with you guys this morning. And I'm going to be talking out of Psalms 130, and the title of my sermon is The Journey of a Disciple. And I was thinking about this idea of a journey, going on a journey. In fact, my wife last night was talking to me about, um, you ever have those moments when you think back on your life? like where you were and now where you are and the journey that got you there. And you're kind of like, wow, that's so amazing. You know, we had one of those moments last night where she was talking about her childhood and all the stuff that she hoped for and dreamed for and now where she's an adult. And there's moments in life, right, where you think I'll never get through this moment, right? I'll never get past this. But then you look back and kind of enjoying the journey, looking back on the journey can be really fun. But then there's also moments where you realize the, uh, the harsh realities of the journey. And in fact, I feel like um, as you get older, this happens more and more often. I recently had one of these moments where I thought about the journey and I was a little bit, I was a little bit frustrated with where the journey had brought me. And uh, I, uh, as my job as youth and conference director, one of the things that I do that David did for seven years was run a youth camp this summer. And, uh, and part of this youth camp, we do activities all day long. And one of the activities that we were doing the first day there was this sumo wrestling game, right, where these kids have all these inner tubes, and they, there's a huge ring, and they got to try to battle to knock each other out or knock each other over. And, uh, and so they're in there battling, and I'm on, the, I'm on the sidelines watching like a good DYD. And, um, you know, the young, the young kid in me starts, you know, rising up. I'm like, man, I want to get in there. I want to teach these, these kids what it's all about. I want to, I want to, you know, I want to mix it up. And so I turned to my, my camp manager, who's Mark Freeman. He's like a big dude, 6'2". He's a youth pastor at Grace Assembly. And I was like, dude, you and I got to get in there and take these kids on. And he turns to me and he goes, dude, that's not a good idea. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, we got to get in there and take these kids on. And then he says these words to me. He goes, you know, David would never have done that. So here's the thing. I'm like, all right, I got to make my mark in here. Like these kids, you know, David is a hard dude. He's a hard shoes to fill, right? Like these kids love David. He always knows the right thing to say. He's, 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 he's Johnny on the spot. He runs these events really well. This is my first year. Like I got to do something. And there's part of me that thinks, man, I got I to gotta make sure these kids have a little bit of fear of the DYD in them. You know what I'm saying? Like they know, like, dude, the DY, he can still, he can still mix up. So I turned to my, I turned to the guy. I was like, we're doing this, all right? David ain't here, and we're doing it. It's a new sheriff in town. So I go to the rec team. I'm like, all right, hey, next round, tell all the teams. There's eight teams to send their best guys in, their biggest best guys, and then they have to take on us too. Whoever survives gets points. So we do two rounds, and I get to the second heat, right? And um, and, and I'm really going for it at this point. And it comes down to me and two kids left. Everybody else is out. And I go to hit, like, to push one of the kids. And all of a sudden, I feel every muscle in my lower back just, like, seize up. Right? And if you had back problems, you know, you know the feeling, right? And the thing is, it doesn't, it doesn't, like, it hurts at first, but it's not the worst at first. But you know what's coming. Right? You know, the longer the day goes on, like this is going to be bad. So I, I have this moment, and I think to myself, I should probably just stop now. Like I should bow out, right? But then I think to myself, I can't do that. Like these kids are going to start cheering for David. We want David back. We want David back. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I can't, I can't give up. 
So I go and I, and I, I battle. Uh, you should know I end up knocking both of them out and I win. Of, you know, I just wanted you to know that little piece of the story. And, um, and, uh, and I get done and, uh, and it's like, yeah, I, I'm a winner. But inside I'm like, no, you're a loser. Like you will be paying for this. And sure enough, this is a true story. Sure enough, I go back to my room. The rest of that entire day, I was on my back in my bed. I could not get out of bed. I missed the whole night service that night. The first, the first night service, no, there's a second night service. I missed the whole thing. And almost the next day, I was on my, on my back in the bed. Even to this day, I woke, woke up this morning, I got up, and I'm like, oh my gosh, my back is still sore. It's still hurting me. So um, I would say I won. You could say I lost. But either way, it was one of those moments where I remember laying in my bed, and I can't move, and I, I turned my wife, I'm like, I'm so angry. I used to be able to do this stuff, no problem, right? Like I used to be able to run around and do all this stuff and never have any back issues. And looking at the journey of where I am now, I'm like, now I can't even play sumo wrestling with kids without being in bed for two weeks. Sometimes the journey is more frustrating than others. This morning, I want to share with you about the journey of a disciple. And uh, we're going to look in, in the story, in the Psalms 130. And before we jump in, I'm going to read it to you in a moment. We're going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into the text. But before we do, I want you to know a couple things about this Psalms I think are really interesting as we read it. And uh, one, of, one of the things that's really interesting as I started to study this Psalms is, historically, this, this Psalm 130 has had incredible impact on some of the greatest Christian minds that we know. Some of the greatest theologians, the people that have helped us understand what Scripture means, have pointed to this psalm as one of their favorites and most impactful. Guys like Augustine and, and Martin Luther have talked about this psalm. In fact, there's a famous theologian who wrote a, a series of sermons on these eight verses, and when he was done, it totaled 512 pages. My sermon's a little shorter than that today, thankfully. But this psalm has had historical impact in a profound way. And the other cool thing about this psalm is it's a song. And it's one of, the, one of the few psalms that would have been sang by the Jews as they were on a pilgrimage to offer sacrifices. So as they would go to Jerusalem, they would sing this psalm to each other. So it's actually very likely Jesus and his disciples sang this song multiple times to each other. So as we read it this morning, I, I thought that was a cool picture to be thinking about, right? That these very words, although not spoken in English, but these very words were most likely spoken by Jesus himself as he was singing this truth over himself. He was reminding himself and his disciples of the truth we're going to learn today. So I'm going to read it and then we'll dive in. Y'all with me? Everybody ready? All right, here we go. Psalms 130, it says this, out of the depths, I cried to you, O Lord. O oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O oh Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this word this morning. Thank you for this beautiful psalm that has so much depth and truth in it, God. And I pray that as we look at it this morning, as we talk about it, that, Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts to be moved by it, 
the truth of it would penetrate us, it would move us in a, in a fresh way, God, that you would show us what you want to show us this morning. And, and I pray that we would be so moved that we would be changed today to new action, that you would do something fresh in us. And as we leave this place, what you've done in us, you will do through us, God. So we thank you for that. In your name, we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen. All right. So as I broke down this Psalm, Psalm 130, and you could break this down a variety of ways. Um, there's so much here, but I, I chose to broke it down into three, three sections. And in fact, this psalm, I think this Psalm is really revealing. It really paints a picture of the psalmist's journey of a disciple. So what it means, obviously, they didn't know Jesus. They were, uh, they were looking forward to Jesus. But what it means as a disciple, someone who knows God, there is this journey that we all must go on. And I think this psalm does a beautiful job of laying out what that journey looks like. And in fact, I wrote down there's three parts to this journey. So we're going to look at how the psalmist breaks down these three parts and how he's singing to God and declaring this truth and then how it applies to us today. And the three parts are this. Number one is desperation. Number two, transformation. And number three, proclamation. Desperation, transformation, and proclamation. It's the journey of a, dis a disciple. Excuse me. So the first thing we're going to look at is desperation. And notice verse 1 and 2, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my voice. For please, for mercy. So the psalmist starts off and uses this language, out of the depths. Right? He is, he is describing, he is crying out in his hearts of the reality of how he feels about his life. He feels in the depths. He feels absolutely there is nothing else for him. And notice what he's crying to, right? It's this moment of absolute desperation where he goes, God, you're the only thing. You're the only thing. Nothing else will work. Nothing else uh, that I can reach for or try will work. He's at the very bottom, the very moment of desperation when he's probably tried everything else. He's gone everywhere else, and he's realized the fruitlessness of it. And now he is crying out to God, and he's begging God to hear him in his uttermost desperation. That's the moment that this psalmist is at. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes... We have a hard time reaching moments of desperation. I think the reason is, is because we can convince ourselves really easily that things aren't as bad as they really are, right? Like, uh, I don't know about you, but I have been on an endless journey of trying to lose weight. And uh, I'm kind of reaching a point now where I've given up my dream of having a summer body, because there's only two weeks left in the summer, and my wife is trying to tell me it's unrealistic to lose 40 pounds in two weeks. So I've kind of given up that dream. Now I'm looking to next summer. David and I, I think we're going to get on that next summer. But, but when you think about it, I, I had this moment, right? And I think one of the reasons it's so hard for, for me or, or anybody to lose weight is we can really convince ourselves that it's not as bad as it really is. Right? Like, you see pictures of yourself, and in every picture, of course, today, like, you just, you stand at the right angle, you know what I mean? You're like, you suck it in, you're like, you put your shirt down, whatever, you know the right angle, and then you, you filter that thing so it looks really good, and, and you see, you're like, oh man, I'm looking pretty good, like, it's not, I mean, you know, and then the other thing is, like, you can hide it well. That's the great thing about winter, right? You just throw some sweaters on, you're like, I don't even know what it looks like underneath here. <laughs> I haven't seen this in a long time, you know? So, so you can convince yourself that it's not as bad, but then every now and then, something happens where it shows you the truth, like how bad it really is. And I recently had this moment. I was on vacation in Vermont, and of course, on vacation, the rule is you have to eat everything in sight. 
And so um, I was there. My sister took a video of me and then posted on Facebook. And I, I watched the video, and I was like, oh, dear Lord. And, of course, you can't turn to your spouse and ask them, like, do I really look like that? You know, because spouses, we got to be like, no, no, I think the camera, something wrong with the camera. This is broken. Or... <laughs> but you look at it, and it hits you, and you're like, oh, my goodness. Like, that's what everyone else sees when I'm not angled and perfectly filtered and everything like that, right? And, and, and it leads you to this moment of desperation where you're going, God, I'll do anything. Sometimes we need these moments of desperation, right? We, need, we, we have a hard time getting there because we convince ourselves we're not really as bad as we think we are. And I think the reason why we do that is the condition of the human heart is to look for significance, From the moment we're children, we want to be significant. We are desperate to feel value and worth, right? Like, what gives me the right to have breath in my lungs? And so we're desperately looking for significance. We're desperately going going after it. In fact, uh, Frederick Nietzsche says this. He goes, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Meaning this, right? If you have a reason for why you're living, you can go through almost anything. And the problem is, I think the reason why we don't ever reach a place of desperation is we will spend our whole lives filling ourselves with self-made whys. We come up with our own reasons of why we do life, right? So my life is about having a great family or being a good person or making lots of money or being successful or being liked or having the perfect marriage, right? And, And everybody creates their own why. This is what life is about. It's, it's the reason why you have value and significance. And so we'll spend our whole life pursuing the, those whys, pursuing the stuff that we go through. And we never are in touch with the reality that those whys never seem to actually satisfy the thing our heart longs for. Right? And so every person on earth, I think, oftentimes spends their whole life asking or, or, or really thinking two thoughts. The first one is this. If I could just get this thing, then I'd be happy, right? Then I'd be fulfilled. Then I'd be, feel significant. And, and, and whatever that thing is, and we all have different ones. If I could just get more people like me, if I could just have the perfect family, if I could just have the perfect job, if I just had more money. How many of us have thought that, right? If I could just have more money, then my problems would be solved. And so we spend our whole life saying that. If I could just get that thing. And there's so many people in this world that literally spend their whole life pursuing something that they'll never actually get. But they'll do it because they think, if I could just get there. It's like like recently we saw a rainbow and my son goes, can we drive to the end of it? But that's what life is like, right? Oh, just over the next mountain we'll get there, just over that thing. And so people will spend their whole lives chasing that thing and saying, if I could just get this, then I'd be happy. But some of us, we ha- two things happen. Some of us, we get that thing, right? And then we realize, oh, wait, it didn't satisfy. Like, we get that job promotion, and then we go, oh, I still feel kind of empty. We buy the new house, right? We get married, and we're in that relationship. And we're like, oh, this person's actually not perfect like I thought they were when we were dating. Like, wow, okay, uh, this is a bummer, right? We get the thing that we thought would fulfill us. All the married people in the room, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> We get it, and then we go, oh, wow, okay, I had kids, and they're, they're stupid a lot of times and not perfect. I thought they would be, right? Whatever the thing is. And so what we do is we shift. We go to something else. We go, okay, well, I guess it's not here. Let me find something else. And we turn our affections and our attentions towards something else. That's some of us. Some of us ask that question, if I could just get this. But then others of us ask the question, if I could just hold on to this, then I'll be happy. 
And so we have things in our life that we think, as long as I don't lose this, this is the thing, right? My wife and I have gone through a really difficult season over the last three years. Uh, my mother-in-law, my wife's mom, uh, was diagnosed with cancer three years ago after a two-year battle, lost her life uh, a little over a year ago. Actually, really all, all, a lot during the same time as Pastor Tom was going through his ordeal. And, um, and for my wife, her mom was her rock. She was born, into a, born through an affair, single-parent home. Her mom was her rock, right? She was everything. She was the, if you have this person in your family, you know the person who holds the family together, right? The glue. They're the ones. They're the one you lean on. They're the stability. They're the one you feel secure. It's like, well, if everything goes wrong, at least I've got mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or whatever. She was that for us. She was that for my wife. And so when she passed at 56, we're looking at our kids and going, okay, now my kids aren't going to have their grandma, right? And, and how are we going to live life? And it's this moment of going, the one thing, right? I could lose everything else, but this is the one thing, God, I don't want to lose, and now all of a sudden it's gone. And how do, you, how do you respond in those moments? See, many of us have those things, right? I'll do, take anything you want, but as long as I don't lose this, as long as I don't lose this. So we either spend our whole life chasing things, saying, if I got this, I'd be happy, or we spend our whole life holding on to what we have and saying, as long as I don't lose this, I'd be happy. And we become slaves to it. And the irony is it never actually satisfies. But we blind ourselves to think a little bit more or a little bit further and we'll get there. See, the psalmist in this moment, he reaches a point where he realizes nothing in life that I've done works. And he's absolutely desperate. There's this reference to a pit Right In the depths, it's this reference to a pit. And, and the funny thing is, there's this idea of lowering down a rope into a pit. But if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if we're going to go on the journey of becoming more like Jesus, this moment has to happen. It's essential. Because here's the thing. You will never, you will never reach for a rope. You'll never even realize you need a rope unless you first realize you're in a pit. Unless you first realize that everything you've done in your life to try to gain significance or worth or value or identity will never satisfy until you realize that and that breaks you and you realize I can't do it until you come to that place of desperation, you will never really be on the journey of discipleship. So the first thing is this, desperation. We gotta become desperate and know he's the only one. The second, one, the second truth we see here and the second part of this journey is transformation. Transformation. So you read up in uh, verse 3, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. So the psalmist starts to shift, right? He shifts from this, this words of desperation, and all of a sudden we start to see this transformation happening in his life. And it's a transformation that has to happen in every disciple of Jesus' life. And he starts to use this language. And I think, I think what, one of the things that's happening here is there's a recognition of two things. There's a recognition of who he is, the reality of who he is right? Notice the words that he uses. He goes, if, if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand, right? So he goes, God, I, I couldn't even stand before you. Like if you were to, you know who I am. You know the reality of my heart, and I don't even deserve to stand before you. I deserve to drop dead before you because of the sin in my heart, right? So there's a recognition of the reality of his, his inability to know what to do, 
And that kind of makes sense, right? Because if you come from a place of desperation where you realize everything in life you've tried hasn't worked, it should kind of leave you to a place of humility where you go, I I'm kind of don't know what I'm doing, right? And it, recently, my, um, you know, we're homeowners now, which is great, except for that um, when anything breaks, panic always immediately sets in. And so recently, we were hanging out, we were watching TV, and I start hearing this crazy noise in, my, in our central air, right? And some of you are, you're, you're real men, so you're like, oh, well, clearly it was blah, 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 this, you know? But um, for those of us who are not quite there yet, I, I immediately started to panic. And I'm like, okay, what is going on? Is there a bomb in the basement? I don't know. And so, uh, and so we, call a, we call a HVAC guy, or, and they come, right? And, and here's what happens. He walks in, and, uh, and he's looking at the system, and immediately I recognize two things. Number one, I don't know anything about this, right? Like, I go down there and look at it. It's like, why am I looking at this? As if I'm going to discover, like, oh, yeah, oh, I see what's happening here. Like, I, you know, I don't even know how to remove the faceplate off the thing. So I immediately recognize I, I know nothing about this, right? I am totally on my own. I, I, I totally can offer nothing to help this solution. If it was up to me, this thing would, would break. We would never have AC again. But then I start to realize the second thing is this. This guy who I've invited in knows everything about this, right? He comes in and he, he removes it and he's, he's talking to me. He's like, here, come on over here. And, as, and I start looking as if I know what he's saying. He's like, you see this phalange tube here? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, no, before I called you, I realized that was one of the issues, you know. Um, and so he's, so I obviously know he knows everything what he's talking about. I know nothing, right? And so what happens is, if I know nothing, he knows everything, I will do whatever he tells me to do, right? So he could say to me, you know what, you need to order a flux capacitor for this to get this thing back on track. And I'd be like, all right, flux capacitor, can we write that down? Is that on sharper image or is that like an Amazon thing? Like, where do I... He could tell me anything, right? And because of the reality of who I am and who he is, I'll do it. But isn't it, isn't it funny that when it comes to our lives and how we live, that doesn't carry over to our interaction with God? See, the psalmist had this understanding of who he was. God, I don't know what I'm doing. God, I, don't, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't deserve to be before you. And at the same time, he had a recognition of who God was. God, you are all powerful. You're the one who knows everything, right? You're the one who marks iniquities, right? You, you are the one who, who, who knows it all. You know the details of my heart. You're the one who designed me, right? You made me for a purpose. Therefore, you know how I should live. You know what's best for me. The psalmist recognizes this, right? And he talks about, he talks about, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. What he's saying there is in God's truth, that's where I put my hope. The problem is that oftentimes we are so crazy and foolish that we forget this. We, we, love, we love God's grace and his love, but then we quickly forget that we know nothing and he knows everything. And so when it comes to how we should live our life, we don't listen to the word of God and we start listening to culture. We start listening to ourselves, our feelings, right? That's kind of the narrative of today's culture. Like, just do what you feel. I feel a lot of stupid stuff a lot of times. Like, no, I shouldn't do that. That's the worst advice ever, right? Just do what feels right. No, that's a terrible idea, right? But that's what we do oftentimes. And we, we forget our place in God's place. The psalmist is saying, man, I recognize who I am and I recognize who he is. And so I was thinking about this and I wonder what this would look like for us if we started to think about things like how we handle our money, 
right? Like it's a, the, part of the, the process of transformation as a disciple is living more in line with who Jesus wants us to be. And so when it comes to things like money, we go, God, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know how I should handle my money. In fact, what I do know is that my, the propensity of my heart is to actually overvalue money and put my hope in money and, and think if I could just get more of this, right? So in, instead of me think, coming up with my own ideas and strategies, God, I'm going to submit, what do you tell me about money and how to operate? In areas of, of sexuality, okay, God, I, I, I really don't know. I know what culture says. I know what people around me are saying, and, and I'm not sure. I mean, that sounds right. That sounds, that sounds good. But God, you made me, right? You designed me. So what I think and what I feel actually is pretty irrelevant in the big scheme of things. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look to your word and say, God, what are, what are you saying? Like, what, what have you called me to do? How have you made me, right? Like, in, in, in the areas of our marriage, right? Imagine, God, I, I, okay, there's moments, right? I don't feel like being married. This person is, is challenging and difficult, and I, and I want to give up, and maybe I thought it was different, and maybe they're going through a hard time, right? But God, what do I know about healthy relationships? I'm so selfish, it's crazy, right? So instead of me doing what I think is best and right, Maybe I'm going to submit my ideas to God's ideas. Man, if we want to move from desperation to transformation, it, it means submitting our own life to him and saying, I don't know what I'm doing. You know everything, God. So it's now your way. And that's a process. So first is desperation. The second is transformation. And thirdly, uh, proclamation. And we're going we're gonna to be closing out here pretty soon so somebody can come and play something in the back. He goes in verse 7, he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Do you notice the shift in language, right? He shifts from talking about himself and talking about God to all of a sudden he starts talking about Israel. And, and what's happening is here is he's starting to declare the truths that he has experienced in his life, and he's proclaiming those truths to his family, the people that he was in relationship with. Israel was, was, it was God's people, right? It was the body. It was his church, right? This is his family, and he starts to proclaim what God has done in him. And you heard Pastor David use this language before, and now God starts to do it through him. Right? And what this tells us is, among many things, the, the end result of discipleship journey in anyone's life is always proclamation. There is never a moment when someone who is a genuine disciple of Jesus goes through and gets to the end and goes, all right, I guess I'm going to keep quiet about this. I'm just going to go live my life. It doesn't happen. The, the, the journey of discipleship always ends with proclamation. It always ends with us sharing with the people around us what God has done through us and in us and, and what we've experienced and what we've seen. And so the psalmist turns and he goes and he starts talking to Israel and he starts sharing not from a place of heightened spirituality, right? But notice he's, he's sharing from the place of his own brokenness. For with the Lord there's steadfast love and with him plentiful redemption. This is just the journey that he's gone through himself. And he's saying, guys, guys, I... I I, I, let me tell you, like, I've been there. I've been there, but, but hope can't be found in that other stuff. Like the other gods you're worshiping, the other things you're looking to, you won't find redemption there. You'll find it in God. 
And there's, a, there, there's, I think, two truths that can be found here that are really important for us in this area of proclamation. And the first is that we have a corporate responsibility. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a corporate responsibility to each other to speak the truth of the gospel into each other's lives. Faith was never meant to be lived in isolation. It was meant to be lived in community where we can exhort one another, we can build one another up, we can lift one another, and we can speak truth to one another. Because in this room right now, Despite uh, the church, you know, the church vibe where everyone's doing great and, and all that, in this room right now are people that are absolutely, they feel in the moment of desperation. And we'd never know it, right? And so we're called to, to be able to proclaim truth to each other's hearts. But can I tell you, the only way that that ever happens is if you have genuine, deep relationships. Like the surface level church stuck coming down on Sunday. Hey, how you doing, brother? God bless. Oh, God is good. Mm, amen. All right, see you later. You know, that, that doesn't work. There's no speaking truth to each other in a way that really profoundly impacts our hearts when that is the, that is the level of relationship that we have. We're called to be a family. There's got to be a deeper, a deeper response. And so some of the questions that, that you could ask yourself is, when do I come here and think about my family and go, you know what, I'm going to invite someone into my home. I'm going to open my life up to someone in a more profound way. I'm going to start getting meals with people and have real conversation with somebody. Because the only way we know if we're, if we're hurting or broken, the only way we know if we need to have truth spoken over us is if we actually really know each other. And just knowing each other's names is not enough. I remember, I remember as when David was DYD and I was a youth pastor, oftentimes if I'd be preaching, he would text me. And because of our relationship, he knew what I struggled with. He knew my temptation, which was to try to find approval from people when I spoke. And so I remember he'd always text me the same thing, just give him Jesus. And what he was saying was, don't, don't look to find approval in this moment. You already have approval in Christ. So all you got to do is give, it to, give him Christ. But the only way that that meant anything is because we had relationship and he knew where my heart was and he knew what I was struggling with, right? And he knew where I was in that moment. If you don't have relationship, you can't have genuine proclamation. So tonight, this morning, maybe, maybe God would challenge you in that and say, you can go another step. The second thing that we can learn from this and then we're gonna close is this. Israel's role in being the people of God was not just for them internally, but it was for the whole world. It was a missional role as they lived out a transformed life, the way God called them to live, they were to show the whole world who God really was. And so the proclamation is not just for the people in this room. The proclamation is for everybody. And our hearts have to be bent on that. So when we walk out and we think about our interaction with our neighbors and our coworkers and everybody that we meet, we think about not only what are the words that I say and how do I speak about my life and about God, but what, how do I live in a way that evidences that the love and the hope that I have is not in the stuff that everybody else has. It's in something different. So as we leave this place, we got to begin to think about not just what do we say, but how do we live? And I would challenge you to take it beyond the typical Christian metric, which is here's your to-do list, here's the good things you can do, and here's the bad things you can do, right? Don't do the bad things and do the good things. No, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is what do we love? What do we chase? What do we find sorrow in? What do we find joy in? Because the answers to those questions should be totally different than the rest of the world. And if that's true, the rest of the world takes notice 
And when your coworker is, wants to commit suicide because they lost their job, you can speak into that. When, when a young adult wants to take her life because her parents get divorced and the feeling is hopeless, you can actually speak into that. You can proclaim a different truth.